and we are live hello hello and welcome to another episode of strong tea i'm vicky and i'm katie and if you haven't joined us before why check out our previous episodes you will find something that you will enjoy i promise mm. if not something that you will find really informative because here on strong tea we're all about dismantling the things that we call taboo we talk about the things that we should be learning more about definitely talking more about and today is no exception we have been so fortunate to have some pretty incredible guests on our podcast and today we are so so lucky to have the wonderful Brooke Miller with us but before we introduce Brooke in old time fashion what are we drinking Brooke what are you drinking my love so I am drinking soul brew kombucha which is kombucha, for those of you that don't know, is fermented tea. Um, so it's made with bacteria, yeast, and sugar and tea, and then fermented over time. And then that results in a drink that holds a lot of prebiotics, antioxidants, um, bacteria. So it's really good for your gut health and your immune system. Mm. Wow. I, when you opened that saying it's been made with bacteria, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> but then you told me the benefits. I was like, okay yeah <laughs> what does it taste like though is it sweet yep so it, it, it has um it depends how long you ferment so the shorter time you ferment the more sugar stays in the drink so the sweeter it's going to be the longer you ferment the more um the sugar gets eaten so it's going to have more of like a vinegary taste and i would say that kombucha mm -hmm. is alike to drinking coffee like you kind of have to build up a tolerance to it not everyone really likes it when they first oh. try it uh, but then you like it and as you like it you kind of want it to be um, stronger in taste and that vinegar taste as you kind of go along in your journey with drinking kombucha <laughs> how long have you been on this journey um I've been drinking kombucha for a long time um and I actually brew it myself too um it's really it's really simple to brew on your own. So I just brew like three small batches and then you can flavor profile them with, um, you know, frozen fruit or fresh fruit. Um, yeah, it's pretty simple and pretty easy and it's kind of expensive in stores. So it's nice if you figure out how to brew it on your own. I got told to drink that when I was pregnant with Freddie, cause they said it would help, um, alleviate symptoms of IBS. And like, you know, when you get a lot of um, heartburn when you're pregnant as well, they were like, this will really help. And I was like, where do you start with it? Because there are so many on the market. And I was just like, oh, ginger and lemon. Let's go with that yeah. one. So yeah. and I tried it. And yeah, you're right. It is expensive. And I I did feel better. It's kind of almost fizzy, isn't it? It's almost yeah. a little bit sparkling. Yeah. The fermentation gives it like the carbonation. Definitely. Hmm. I need to try this. I need to jump on this this trendy bank bandwagon, I think. train. You just have yeah. to, the only thing is, is that you have to be a little bit careful now because it has become, at least in the United States, it's become very trendy to drink. So there are some companies that are putting added sugar in it to increase that flavor profile. Um, people want to drink it. And obviously that's just, you know, that's akin to drinking, you know, a soda or whatnot. So you don't want to be, yeah. you know, if you're looking for the health benefits, you don't want to be drinking one of those types. But yeah, if you look for one that has no added sugar. And um, I usually look for one that's like, you know, in a 12 ounce bottle, I would say no more than eight grams of sugar, six to eight grams is probably good. Um, then you know that they're just fermenting and that's just the sugar that's left over from the process. Love it. Absolutely yeah. love it. There you go, listeners. 
We'll have to do a uh, maybe like a taste test, kombucha taste test. Oh yes. I would probably be good if we could just do an episode on all the teas and all the drinks that we've had on the show because we've had some really random stuff, haven't we? And also biscuit dunkability. Dunking, of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Okay. yeah I don't think I would recommend dunking anything in kombucha. Oh. Oh. I might <laughs> like have to get Yeah, there you go. <laughs> celery. <laughs> um, well, I've gone for a fruit-based drink, Um I've gone for fruit salad, bird and blend tea, loose leaf tea. Oh, so good. I don't know um, if you have uh, penny sweets or, well, they would be like one cent sweets, wouldn't they, in the States? But like over here, we have things that are called fruit salad sweets. They're a little bit like drumsticks and refreshers, if you guys have those over there. Really sweet, fruity, chewy sweets. And this is the tea that tastes just like them. Oh, yeah. The apple pieces, hibiscus, rosehip, elderberries, freeze-dried raspberries, like whole raspberries, lemongrass, orange blossom, orange peel, and strawberry pieces. Oh, well, that's amazing. Get my five a day, kind of, ish. There you go. Fruit Why not? Vicky, go on and lighten us to what you're enjoying today in your cup. Enjoying is a strong word. I have half a cup of lemsep left. <laughs> why don't you tell us where the other half went? <laughs> spilt it before you hit record (laughs) it's been one of those days just yeah clumsy clara has come to visit maybe you know the um you know the scent of it will help with the sinus release you know because it's in the room yeah no i think yeah maybe maybe i'm uh, yeah fingers got pessimistic today let's be optimistic let's bring this up yeah, lick that desk. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, before this gets really weird, um, I'm going to introduce our wonderful guest um, today. And we are joined by the fabulous Brooke Miller, who is a mental health blogger. And she has created the blog SmashingStigmas.com, which details all her own experiences with OCD, eating disorders, bipolar and panic disorder, amongst others. And she's going to talk to us about her journey today uh, she's also a fantastic nurse a mum a dancer the list goes on this woman has a lust for life like I've never seen before and she is uh, very very present on social media sharing her story to help and support others and that's why she's agreed to join us today which is wonderful so Brooke thank you um, before we get started for joining us today we really appreciate it and having just woken up as well <laughs> thank you for having me I'm super excited to be here not at all, not at all. Um, as we said before in the intro, we want to use this platform to open up the conversation about uh, topics that people may be misinformed about or things that people find difficult to talk about. And your experience is is extremely unique and we'd love to hear it. So if you're ready, will you tell us your story? Sure. Um, so I will try to keep this somewhat abbreviated because I feel like I could spend hours telling my story. It's been, you know, I don't know, almost 30 some years in the making. So um, it started off around the age of eight is when I can um, remember back to first starting to see symptoms of my obsessive compulsive disorder. Obviously hindsight is 2020. So as I learned more about it, it became more evident to me that that's what I was experiencing at that age. Um, The first couple of things I can recall doing is I remember having to fold um, 
all of my dirty laundry before I put it into the hamper. And I had this association in my mind that if I didn't do this, this was the compulsion that this thought in my head of something bad would happen to my parents would come true. So that was the first one. And the second one I can recall from that age was I had a lot of decorative pillows on my bed around that age. And at nighttime, when it was time to go to bed, instead of just kind of brushing them off onto the floor so that I could sleep in my bed, I had to take each individual pillow and put it in a certain pattern on the floor. And same thing, it was tied to that thought of if I didn't do this behavior or this compulsion, that the thought of something bad happening to my parents um, being death primarily would come true. And that in a nutshell is what obsessive compulsive disorder is. It's this idea that you have these obsessions or intrusive unwanted thoughts and you try to neutralize those thoughts by doing compulsions or activities um, is a good way to put it. Um, and these are not enjoyable things. These are not enjoyable thoughts. These are not wanted thoughts. These are not, you know, activities you are choosing to do or wanting to do. Um, they're compulsions to neutralize those um, uncomfortable feelings or thoughts. So I went through grade school and through high school um, into college. I struggled a lot with perfectionism, um, obsessive compulsive disorder. So I did a lot of perfecting. Pretty much my whole life was perfecting. So on the outside, I looked like the best student, the best child, you know, once I got into high school, the best employee, um, because I strived so hard to be good and perfect at every single thing I did to help neutralize some of those intrusive thoughts that I was having. Um, I moved into college um, and continued these behaviors and these really started to build up. And as you can imagine, I was commended um, for a lot of my behaviors, right? Like what teacher didn't want a great student and what parent didn't want a great kid. Um, and so people were constantly commending me. So they were really just kind of feeding the beast unknowingly, right? I mean, back at that, I'm 37 years old. So back at that point in time, you know, mental health still really wasn't talked about very much. Um, OCD was not a well-known, you know, disorder. And so everyone just kind of chalked it up to, well, that's just how she is. She just likes things in certain order. She's just likes to be perfect and try to, you know, do really well. And that's just her and it's okay. So then I moved into college and college was when I first started noticing that something wasn't really right. Um, I started having a lot of anxiety. I had irritable bowel syndrome that was likely caused from a lot of the anxiety um, I started experiencing like anger outburst, which definitely does not run um, even with my baseline personality. And so I knew something was up. So I decided to see my first therapist um, and I went to the on-campus clinic. And unfortunately, it was a really, really uncomfortable first time experience. Um, I went into his office. It was a male and he spent the first 20 minutes talking to me about another patient who was experiencing sexual um, intrusive thoughts and images, which did not apply to me whatsoever at that time. I was not experiencing anything like that. I did not tell him anything like that. So it was really, really uncomfortable. And I was just counting down the clock to being able to get out of the room. So I left and it was a poor experience. And so I had no interest in going back. 
Um, so I continued on, but as you can imagine, things started to get worse um, because that's how obsessive compulsive disorder is. Like as if you don't treat it, those thoughts just evolve and then they start to take over different parts of your life. You have more compulsions and it just starts to like really grow its roots really deep. So I had a couple experiences in college too that I think were um, big page turners for like my journey with obsessive compulsive disorder. And that was it within 30 days of each other. I was in a nursing class and my cell phone kept ringing and it was my mom and it kept ringing and kept ringing. And so I was like, okay, I stepped out of class and I took the call and I was like, Hey mom, what's up? And she was like, I'm just going to let you know that your grandpa, my grandpa had gotten sick with lung cancer and it had, he was only on about three weeks of his diagnosis. And she called and she's like, I'm just letting you know that your grandpa's likely not going to make it through the day. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to like talk to him and say goodbye. So I was very grateful that she was able to get a hold of me. And I talked to my grandpa and I was able to say, you know, goodbye and give him that opportunity. Um, Within 30 days, my grandpa passed away and then I was in another nursing class and my cell phone kept ringing, kept ringing, kept ringing. And it was my now husband, boyfriend at the time. And so I was like, what is going on? So I stepped out of class again, picked up the phone and it was him. And he was like, I'm just letting you know, your mom called me. Your dad was in a construction accident. He's in an ambulance. He's on the way to the hospital. And that really was all he knew. And so I, you know, immediately I left the class. I ran back to our house. We jumped in the car. We went to the hospital. Um, he had a pretty significant crush injury on his hand. He ended up losing um, one of his fingers. But all in all, he was safe. He was okay. He's healthy. He's still here with me today. I'm very grateful for that. Um, but these two events created this new path of intrusive thoughts for me. So I started to tie my phone with bad things happening. So then a big compulsion of mine throughout history has been avoidance. So I started avoiding the phone. So I wouldn't take phone calls. Anytime my phone rang, my anxiety would go through the roof. I would automatically assume somebody died. So I just wouldn't answer it. And I would make people leave voicemails. And I would wait until I prepared myself to be able to listen to the voicemail to see if anything bad happened. So around this time is when I really realized, okay, I think I need to see somebody again. Went to a therapist. She was great. Hindsight 2020 again. Um, and this is very, very common right now. Um, therapist will say they are able to help you with your obsessive compulsive disorder, but they are not familiar with the evidence-based practice of um, exposure response prevention, which is the gold standard for OCD. And so I had a therapist who I enjoyed, I liked, she was very kind. She helped me talk through kind of daily challenges, but I saw her for a couple of years and she did not treat me with exposure response prevention. So even though I kind of felt better, like each session when I went to her, we really weren't getting at the root and we weren't treating the OCD. So the OCD was still festering and getting worse. So it really started to work its way into like all of my routines. Um, so then I graduated college. My now husband and I um, moved out. We got our careers started. We moved out to California together for a little while. And then we got pregnant with our first kiddo. And it was really interesting, actually, because um, this is heard of that your hormones can kind of fluctuate with your OCD. So I, um, during my pregnancies, I did okay. 
I actually had like less intrusive thoughts. I felt like I was pretty manageable for the most part. And it kind of was the first time in my life that I had felt like kind of a sense of relief. Um, so that was really interesting. Unfortunately, once I had my kid, I love, I have a son that's 10 years old and a daughter that's eight years old. And I love them so much. Um, they are my world. But after I had my son, my firstborn, my OCD just latched on right away. I was like, oh, here's a new thing I can attack. So I started, you know, like any new mom, watching my son when he was sleeping at nighttime to make sure he was breathing. Unfortunately, this turned into a compulsive behavior that I continued to do up until a year ago. So my kids were nine and seven. And that is when my current therapist finally challenged me to really get a hold of this compulsion because everyone understands checking on your child when you're a new parent and they're an infant and all of that. But this is not a behavior that should be happening when they're school-aged children. So that kind of shows like the difference, you know, between obsessive compulsive disorder mindset and that of, you know, somebody who does not struggle with that. So um, the the stuff with my son got worse. I was constantly looking up on the internet. What he, he burped, what does that mean? He cried, what does that mean? Spending hours and hours. Um, and then I had my daughter or actually I got pregnant with my daughter. And around that time is when my OCD got really, really, really bad and it was unmanageable. So I saw another therapist, went and saw her one day, came back for my next session and she sat me down and said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And so she sent me on my way and I was like, oh, here we go again. Okay, great. So then um, I ended up calling our local mental health hospital, got a, um, in contact with the outreach program. And they actually told me that in the entire like Southeastern um, part of the state of Wisconsin, which is, I mean, the Metro Milwaukee area, all the suburbs, I mean, it's a big area, heavily populated. There were three therapists they would recommend in the entire area that were actually trained to treat people with obsessive compulsive disorder through exposure response prevention. Wow. And they said, I would not recommend anybody else. And I said, okay, well, this is why I've struggled so much to actually get a hold of somebody that can help me. So um, I got a hold of somebody and I'm still with a therapist today. We're going on like 10 years, I think, um, of treatment. And so I started seeing him and we, those first couple of months, we spent a lot of time on what I consider like tactile compulsions. So for example, I had um, contamination obsessions with toxic items. I wouldn't touch receipts because they had BPA in them. I couldn't do the laundry because I wouldn't touch the lint because I thought the lint was toxic, things like that. So we worked on all those by doing exposure. So that looked like, you know, looking at the lint until my anxiety came down, poking the lint until my anxiety came down, holding it for five seconds until you eventually get to the point where you can do those activities again and they don't cause anxiety or they cause minimal or manageable um, anxiety. So we worked on a lot of that. I was with him for a couple months and then I was like, woo, I got this. I'm good to go. And he still kind of cracks jokes to this day saying, he's like, you walked out of here so confident. He's like, I just was like, mm, I think she'll be back. <laughs> so um, about a year later, I ended up having my first panic attack. I am an operating room nurse by trade. And I actually was in the operating room. I was going to get, I specialize in cardiac, pediatric cardiac care. And I was actually on my way to pick up a patient. 
And I was in the hallway and all of a sudden my left arm went numb. I started feeling hot and flushed, feeling lightheaded, thought I was going to faint. Walked back to the OR, sat down at the front desk, and they ended up calling a code um, because I was having chest pain um, and I just didn't look well. They, It was really an interesting experience because all the people that responded to the code were all doctors that I worked with on the daily. Um, so they, I remember somebody mentioned to me, an anesthesiologist who I was close with at the time, she sat there and she held my hand through all of it. And I am so thankful for that. But she said to me, I remember she leaned over and she was like, I think you might be having a panic attack. And at the time I was just like, no, no, that can't be it. There's something wrong with my heart, you know? So I went to the ED, I ended up getting cardiac workup, all of that, everything came back clean. So at that point in time, it was suggested that it was a panic attack. So I ended up calling my therapist back and said, hi, it's me again. I just had a panic attack in the operating room. So I think I need to see you. <laughs> so he got me back in and that was May of 2016. 2016 was the year I turned 30, but it was also the year that um, was very challenging for me. So we had determined in the next couple months, I finally shared with him, um, but very high level, that I was experiencing a new and what is considered a taboo type of obsessive compulsive disorder, which was relationship obsessive compulsive disorder. So I was having intrusive thoughts of wanting to be with other people. Those people included my um, colleagues that I worked with. They included my, um, a very good friend of mine at the time. Um, they in, and then they ended up eventually including my therapist. So I have a very strong thought action fusion. And so what that means is that when I have these thoughts of, you know, cheating on my husband or wanting to be in an emotional or sexual relationship with these other people, I automatically assign that to the fact that I am a cheater. I'm a terrible person and I'm not deserving of good things. So I started to very quickly restrict my daily intake, which I did not have a baseline of an eating disorder at that point in my life. And in a matter of six weeks, I ran myself practically to death and didn't eat anything. I lost over 30 pounds and um, ended up having heart palpitations. And it got to the point where everyone was super concerned and I didn't see it. I was like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I remember the red flag. One night I went to bed with my husband and he rolled over and he looked at me and he said, I think you're going to die from this. And all of a sudden, like something went off in my head. And so I went to my therapist the next day and I was like, I need help. I can't stop. Um, I need help. And so they helped me. I ended up going to partial hospitalization for an eating disorder. Um, I was there for about two months. I was out of work. Partial hospitalization is where you go Monday through Friday, eight to five. So like regular business hours. Um, and they worked on just restoring my weight so that my brain could function appropriately, um, making sure that my electrolytes were good um, and whatnot. And then I came back out and I did a couple weeks of intensive outpatient. And then I went back to my outpatient team, which at that point now consisted of a psychiatrist, a therapist, and a dietitian. Um, so in the next several years, we kind of ebbed and flowed with the eating disorder and the OCD, but I really held on to the, um, primarily the fact that I was having those intrusive thoughts about my therapist. So we worked on those intrusive thoughts about my colleagues and about my friend and all of that, but I didn't relinquish 
to my therapist that I was having these thoughts about him. So those continued to grow and grow and grow. So eventually uh, we got to the point where I finally told him and he um, at first was like, whoa, I think you might need to see somebody else. And I was like, whoa, no, like I can't do this again with somebody else. And so we kind of had to work through the fact that these feelings were not real, that these feelings were intrusive thoughts. And then um, we started to treat those. So during that treatment, the treatment got very intense. I would have to have like exposures looked like having thoughts of, yep, I do want to have sex with my therapist. Yep. I do want to marry my therapist. I don't want to be with my husband anymore. You know, he's and agreeing with those thoughts and letting those thoughts be there. So as you can imagine, that's extremely challenging for somebody who struggles significantly with like morality. Um, and so actually January of, um, 2022. So about a year and a half ago, I ended up having my first manic episode. Um, they think it came from the intensity of just the treatment and the anxiety built and built and built. And all of a sudden one day I just lost it. I started slowly taking my, um, benzos that I had to try to calm myself. I got myself into a state of delusion. I started hearing actual voices telling me to hurt myself. And I started cutting myself over and over and over again. Um, and so I ended up getting put inpatient for safety concerns. Um, and that was when I received the diagnosis of bipolar. And so came out of treat, came out of um in inpatient, and then um I got put on a mood stabilizer, and the mood stabilizer did wonders for me. So then we continue to progress through last year. We're working. Everything is going great. We're making huge progress. And then October comes and I have the worst panic attack I've ever had in my life. And I get stuck in these panic attacks. So I had about two weeks where I was averaging like five to seven panic attacks a week on a scale of zero to 10 for intensity, like a seven or an eight. So it got to the point where they ended up having to give me Clonopin to just pretty much shut me down because they were trying to like trip my brain back into like not panic attacking over and over and over and over again. So with time, it like slowly got better. It turned into four, then it turned into three a week. And then the intensity of them started to drop and it started to like slowly balance out. And then we weaned off of the Clonopin. And for the most part, we've been doing pretty well. I still have them every once in a while, but I would say significant panic attacks. I might average one a month, I would say at this point. So um, after that happened in October, up until about, um, and this is a new update even since the last time I talked to you guys. Um, so I, treatment was going amazing. I made the most progress ever. My, my therapist actually got to the point of backing my appointments down to every other week, which I'd never done for the past 10 years. Um, he saw the light at the end of the tunnel. I saw the light at the end of the tunnel. We were headed towards discharge, slow discharge process. Um, I was doing all of my exposures about him, my relationship OCD, as well as everything else. And then, um, uh, about six weeks ago, I said, you know, I really want to try to come off of my mood stabilizer. I've done so well. I'm doing so well. Maybe that wasn't in the back of my mind. I was like, maybe that wasn't a manic episode. Maybe I don't have bipolar. You know, maybe it was just an anxiety attack or whatever. So I came off the medication and everything seemed to go pretty well for several weeks. 
And then um, about a week ago, a week and a couple days ago on Friday, I had a significant depressive episode. Um, I could not get out of bed. I was crying and just writhing in like mental anguish and pain. Um, and all I wanted to do was hurt myself. So I stopped eating cold turkey, uh, which did not help my case. Anytime you stop your caloric intake like that, um, it really tends, at least in my experience, it really tends to make whatever mental health, um, you know, illness I'm struggling with at that point, much, much worse. Um, and then I started self-harming again. And so my treatment team wanted me to go inpatient. We tried to call and we were having connection problems. And so my husband took the role on for the next several days. Um, he followed me everywhere into the bathroom, everywhere I went. Um, and he slept in front of the door on the floor at nighttime to make sure I couldn't leave the bedroom um, for several days. And I started taking my medication again. Um, during that time, I did still find the opportunity to hurt myself because when your mind is that made up that that's all you're deserving of is pain, um, you will figure out how to do it no matter where you are, who's, who's watching you or who's helping you. Um, and so I started taking the medication again and I'm going on about eight days, nine days of the medication. And it is, um, I'm a totally different person. Um, for the positive. I am having conversations with people that I talked to over the past several weeks and they're like, it is night and day. They're, you know, and this is all hindsight, right? Nobody really noticed it in the moment, but they were like, you were so irritable. Um, you know, you didn't really like want to do much. You didn't engage much. You were retreating and all of these things. And now I am back to feeling, I feel happiness. I feel joy. I feel like I can do things like this with you guys. And, you know, I feel um, comfortable enough um, to begin like to, you know, restart my advocacy journey. I had gotten pretty silent on social media because I just didn't even know what to say. Um, so I'm kind of reintroducing myself back in. I actually have a video update that I'm going to be providing pretty soon to all of my followers just to let them know where I've been past couple of weeks and really to share, this is the reality of it. Um, you know, recovery is definitely not linear. It is not linear. And so these things happen, relapses happen. And when they happen, you can just work to, you know, gain that control back during that, do what you need to do to help yourself um, and just get back on your road to recovery. So that is where I am today. <laughs> wow. That is, I mean, that is some journey and there is so much to unpack there. And I think you've, you really hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, you want to, you want to tell people that this is how it is. It's not because we have so many people that come on here and sort of say, you know, I've been going, I've, I've been, I've been in recovery for this amount of time and, you know, things are great. And you never really hear that sort of rawness of it snuck back in and sort of caught me when I least expected it. So thank you for sharing that with us, because I can't imagine that anything that you've said is easy to recount, but I know why you do it. But the the one thing that really struck me when you were talking about OCD and a lot of the things about intrusive thoughts as well, you actually said it gets worse if it's not treated. And I didn't realize that, you know, I thought OCD was something that just sort of sat and it was always there and it stayed the same. It was always intrusive and it was always trying to get at you. But I didn't realize that it got worse. So... I mean, there must be there must be millions of people out there suffering with this. And there are. 
just getting worse, right? Yep. And it gets worse as it gets untreated. The best way to explain it is that like, I look at it as like a disease, right? Like it just manages to like weave itself in everywhere it gets the opportunity. Um, and it's constantly evolving, you know, even throughout my treatment, you know, like I mentioned before, I struggled a lot with contamination in the sense of toxicity. And when I worked really hard on my exposures to get a hold of that, it was like, once I finally felt like I regained control over that, it was like, oh, well, I'm just going to jump to this now. So now it's like, I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to pick a new thing to pick up on. So, you know, it picked up on when I had kids, it was like, oh, you have kids now. Well, now I'm just going to make you have intrusive thoughts about your kids dying or, you know, something bad happening to them. Mm. Um, you know, same thing with the relationship. Oh, you conquered all of the stuff with your kids and those worries. Oh, okay. Well, now I'm just going to make you question and doubt your relationship that you've been in for, you know, almost 15 years married to your high school sweetheart who I love and adore and would never want anything bad to happen to my relationship. You know, oh, you're a high morality person. You hold yourself to high standards. Well, let me weasel in there too. Mm. Um, so yeah, just constantly evolving and changing um, and definitely like if it goes untreated, it just gets worse. And I mean, it gets to the point where there's people that it, you know, and I know some, um, because to the point where they literally end up just trapping themselves in their bedrooms, they don't mm -hmm. come out because at that point it's just infested everything. And they, that is the only place that they feel any sense of safety. Almost sounds like a demon that just keeps knocking on the door. Like, like, and, and gets more powerful with, it's, it sounds horrendous um the other thing that you said that I wanted to touch on because I think it's so important to talk about this because panic attacks I think are so misunderstood by people that don't have them because a lot of people think that it's sitting in a corner and crying people don't you know and that sort of rocking and that you know not being able to talk to people people don't associate it with those physical I mean when you started talking like that you think, Christ, you must have thought you were having a heart attack, being a nurse as well. Like, you know, the sort of cardiac issues. I think it's so important, you know, that why why don't we talk about this stuff? Why is it such a sort of closeted issue? Yeah, I mean, stigma. Stigma is huge in the mental health world, right? It's why it's one of the, like the top reasons why people don't seek treatment. Um, and I think, and that's why I do what I do. That's why I advocate because it needs to be talked about more. It's not talked about, you know, it was like back and I don't, I'm not that old. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I keep telling myself that as I get older. <laughs> you can keep saying that because we're like the same age. So I'm like, that, I'm yeah, totally right. saying that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, back when I was a kid, mental health wasn't talked about at all. Like no. literally at all. And I am a huge proponent of physical health and mental health need to be treated the same. You know, you can have a diagnosis of something like diabetes and, you know, you get an appointment with a doctor and they run the appropriate test and you get, you know, a positive result and they give you a treatment plan and a medication regimen and you're underway and hopefully you're able to maintain with that support, you know, to keep yourself healthy. But I mean, in the sense of my OCD, I went through how many treatment providers that told me they could treat me and nobody helped me. I didn't make connection with the first treatment provider who was actually trained to help me until I was 27 years old. Wow. So that's why I'm still, I mean, honestly, that's why I'm still in treatment today. That's why I'm in treatment 10 years later, because it takes a long time to unpack 20, 
almost 20 years of obsessive compulsive disorder. So, I mean, yeah, I definitely think it's stigma and I definitely think that it just needs to be talked about more. And I'm so grateful for this opportunity to be on here and utilize this platform to just, you know, tell people that are experiencing this, that there is hope, they can feel better. You know, they're not alone. Um, even though it's not talked about, it is experienced and it is experienced a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the statistics are just, it's, yeah, they're mind blowing really or what they are when it comes to how many people are experiencing mental health, um, illnesses or disorders or, um, whatnot. So. Sounds like, I mean, your husband, he's obviously, you know, your your lifeline, your, you know, you're beaming just with mentioning him. He's obviously been just such a rock for you. How, how has this impacted your relationships? And I think um, particularly, particularly interested for me as well as being a mother, sometimes you try and shield kids from some of the things that you're experiencing while still trying to tell them that things aren't quite right, but you know, they're not mature enough to understand. So how how has that impacted your role as a mom and your relationships as a whole? Yeah, definitely. Um, so as you can imagine, the relationship OCD component was very challenging. Mm. Um, and I am I am that number one person to do that. Like you said, I do not tell the people that love me most when things aren't going well, because I don't want to put that pain on them. I don't want them to have to worry about me. And that is something that I've had to work on. That's as you can imagine, my husband he wants to know, he wants to be able to be there and support me. And he wants to know. So when I was, you know, keeping him from those things, um, I wasn't giving him the opportunity to support me and to be who he wants to be and for him to choose what his role was going to be in this. So I have worked on that and I've gotten much better. I still sometimes skirt around things, but I think that's just because it's a behavior I've been doing for so long. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm going to be honest, like if we're here to talk about taboo things, When it came time where I was ready to tell him about the relationship OCD, it did not go well. Um, So I, there were three people in my life that I had to tell that to, and it did not go well with any of them. So still to this day, I, I mean, I remember that. Like, so there are still times when like, I need to tell somebody that something isn't going well. And I still like, I feel, you know, that pit in my stomach and like that rock in my throat of like, oh gosh, what if this doesn't go well again? But yeah, like when I told my therapist that I was having those thoughts about him and his initial reaction was, oh gosh, I don't think I can treat you. And this was the first person to finally help me. Like Mm -hmm. that was traumatizing. And he still to this day is very like apologetic. Obviously that wasn't his intention. He just wanted to make sure that, you know, ethically he could continue to treat me and whatnot. Um, The second person that I ended up telling was, one of my very close male friends at that point that it had affected him. And, um, in the end, um, we aren't friends anymore. Um, that didn't go well. And that was really unfortunate because he was a very supportive person um, for me at that time, but it got very misunderstood. Um, it got, I mean, like I said, we're here to talk about the down and the dirty. It got to the point where his wife thought that he was emotionally cheating on me and I was emotionally cheating on my husband with him. And the reason why was because I was seeking reassurance by texting him. So I would text him, Hey, how's your day? And he would say, good. And that was my opportunity to real, to reassure myself that, see, I don't have, I don't have uh, feelings for him. 
because I'm not getting anything out of this test. So then if I started doubting myself again, I'd be like, oh, hey, are you on call tonight? Because we worked together, you know, or whatever. And so these, every time I text him, that was just a compulsion. That was for me to seek that reassurance that, see, I'm not getting butterflies in my tummy. I don't want to be with him. And unfortunately, it got to the point where his wife ended up seeing all of these text messages and it didn't go over well. And so that's still painful for me. That was somebody that was really important to me at that point in my life um, and was supportive of me with my mental health, you know, through my eating disorder and all of that was supportive of me. And um, just like that, the relationship stopped, the support stopped, and that was that. And then the third and final and most important person was when I finally got to the point of telling my husband, um, you know, the look on his face when I told him I'm having intrusive thoughts of being in emotional and sexual relationships with other people was devastating. Mm -hmm. I mean, what person wants to hear that, especially when they're not, when they don't fully understand the disease and the illness and how it works, right? That these are unwanted thoughts. These are not wanted. These are not desires nothing like that. And so that was painful seeing that like on his face when I first told him. Now, we have come years from that. And he is just as knowledgeable about obsessive compulsive disorder as a trained therapist at this point. <laughs> um, and so he fully understands the fact that these are intrusive, unwanted. And so we have that dialogue now and we have that ability to talk about it. Like, hey, hon, I'm starting to have these relationship thoughts again and they're really getting to me. You know, I feel myself wanting to restrict or I feel myself wanting to self-harm for these thoughts. And then he's there to support me through that. Um, and so I am so grateful for that. But yeah, when I first had to tell all these people, no, it didn't go well. That sounds um, that sounds traumatizing in itself, having to face up to to those people and say it out loud. Like you say, it sounds like it's left some some pretty deep scars on on you. The one thing that I'm getting through through your whole story, and you actually said in one part, you know, you talked about compulsions, intrusions, how unwanted it all is. And you actually said, when you talked about your eating disorder, you said, I can't stop. And people, I think, unless, and you you just said there about people not understanding these as diseases, they don't understand what that means. Like, you know, oh, what, why, you know, you hear that thing about if you're anorexic, why don't you just eat something? And it's not that easy. Why do you think this is so misunderstood? Why do you think people are so ignorant and sometimes quite offensive with the way that they view these things? Yep. Um, it's funny that you just said that because that exact phrase came out of somebody that I had a very good relationship with at that time. I was explaining to them that I was really sick and I thought that there was potential for me to have to go to the hospital. And they were like, why can't you just used an expletive eat something? And they were like, I will go buy you something. I will go get you a can of Ensure, which is like a, you know, a drink that's packed with calories that's meant as a meal replacement. And I remember looking at them and being like, oh my gosh, if I could, I would. Nobody chooses this. I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. Nobody sits here and says, I'm just not going to eat. It doesn't work like that. And so I do think that a lot of it comes from misunderstanding, right? Unless you personally experience or, you know, have a loved one 
that has experienced it, or maybe our uh, treatment provider that is in training for how to work with people that are experiencing these different, you know, mental health illnesses um, or disorders. It's just really hard to really understand what that feels like. Um, these aren't the best way I can put it is none of these are choices. Nobody is choosing, you know, a frequent, a common misconception about OCD is you just like to be organized. You know, nobody is choosing obsessive compulsive disorder because what people don't understand is that for those who do struggle with organization, that is a compulsion for an unwanted intrusive thought that is on replay in their head over and over and over again, every second of every day. And they are trying to neutralize that thought. So I think it 100% comes down to talking and education. And so, yeah, there are times when people say things to me or I'm exposed to things where inside I want to scream because I'm like, oh my gosh, it is not that. But I dig down deep and I say, this comes out of lack of knowledge. You know, there are very few people in this world, I think, that really, truly intend to be cruel and malicious and mean. And so I dig down deep and I put my advocate hat on and I say, well, I would really, if you would allow me, I would really like to share some of my personal experience with you and, you know, explain to you what obsessive compulsive disorder really is and what it actually looks like, you know, or an eating disorder or, you know, whatnot. Um, and give opportunity to explain to people and give them that personal lived experience and what it looks like. That neatly goes into a question I've I've got um, because it sounds like you come across a lot of um, misled people who have you know sort of misled people people who have been given misled leading information the whole just you know why can't you just eat that kind of lack of knowledge. And so I guess you've had to learn a bit of patience along the way when you're talking to people and all the work, the amazing work that you're doing. But what else have you learned from your journey and from your diagnosis and treatment? Um, I think the number one thing I have learned personally is that there's no magic pill that is going to make this all go away. Um, and that there is hope that you can live a more, you know, a life that aligns more with your values and who you are as a person. Um, it takes time and it takes effort. Um, I spent years, I mean, up until literally about a year ago, looking for the black and white of the situation. I'm going to be healed. I'm going to be freed. I am never going to experience any of this ever again. I'm going to check these boxes off and I'm going to move on. And that's not the way that it works. I have now come to terms and accepted the fact that, you know, a lot of this is probably going to be a part of me for the rest of my life, but I can live a life that aligns with the things I want to be doing and the thoughts I want to be having I can be happy. I can feel joy. I can, you know, not feel held under the claws of my obsessive compulsive disorder, spending every waking minute feeling like I need to do this compulsion and I need to do this compulsion to be able to move on to that next, you know, minute of my day. So I can feel freed. Um, but I will always probably have to use my tools that I've been trained to use, you know, to help myself manage. I will have dips. 
you know, where I might take a couple steps backward, but I try not to look at it like that. Not, I'm not stepping backwards. I'm still moving forward. Anytime that I have like a quote unquote relapse, I'm still moving forward. I'm still living through that experience and getting to the other side of it. And that's progress. Um, so yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that was me just chatting away there. Totally on mute. <laughs> um, I was just about saying, you know, what you said there shows so much strength in the sense that you don't look at it as a setback. You're learning from each time, you know, like you talked about, you know, last week where you have that episode and then you realized you needed to take the pills again. It wasn't the right time, you know, and, and how you've moved forward from that. You've learned from that. I kind of, you know... I'm blown away by everything that you've talked about and everything that you've experienced, because for a lot of people, some people will just experience, I say just, some people will only experience OCD. Some people will only experience bipolar disorder. And these are massive, massive things for people to overcome. And you've got this overwhelming list that for me, it sounds like, oh my God, how do you, how do you deal with that on a day-to-day -day basis? And I guess that's my question. On a, on a day-to-day -day basis, you've talked about the meds that you're on, you've talked about the therapy that you do, but how do you, how do you move forward with your life on a day-to-day -day basis? And how do you cope with all of these things without it becoming overwhelming? Like, oh my God, it's going to trample me and take me over again. Um, in some of the lowest points of my life experiencing all of this, I wasn't able to do it for myself. So I had to find something to do it for. And at that point I picked my kids and my husband. So I had to do it for them. Um, I couldn't do it for myself at that point. So I had to do it for them. I thankfully have gotten to the point now where I do and can do it for myself. I do it so that I can, you know, live a happy life and enjoy the activities that I do with my kids and you know, my husband and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, day to day, there are still challenges. And I think the biggest thing for me is what we consider relapse prevention. So it's to be, you know, not overly aware, but aware of your behaviors and your patterns, you know, am I all of a sudden starting to notice that like, um, I'm starting to avoid something, you know, Maybe I was doing the dishes pretty regularly and now all of a sudden I'm noticing that I'm only doing the dishes like once a week. Like, why is that? You know, and trying to really like notice those changes of behavior and then implementing exposure response prevention right when I notice those things. Because it is so, at least in my experience, is so much easier to tackle something if you start ERP right when you notice something's going awry instead of waiting until it builds, 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 because that's going to take you a longer time to kind of bring it back more towards baseline. You know, so if I notice, oh, wow, I haven't been doing the dishes. Why have I not been doing the dishes? Oh, well, it's because I'm afraid the water is contaminated. Okay, well, that's a problem. So what am I going to do? You know, am, do I need to call my therapist to get an exposure or can I formulate one by myself? You know, and at this point, I'm pretty good at formulating them by myself. So then I say, okay, today, you know, when my husband's doing the dishes, I'm going to go over and I'm just going to stick one finger in the dishwasher, dishwater. Okay, cool. I can tolerate that. Okay, good. Now I'm going to stick my whole hand. Okay, good. You know, and trying to build those exposures in as I recognize things are starting to move their way away from what I know is my baseline. Mm -hmm. So yeah, exposure response or uh, response prevention is huge. 
um, for me. It's recognizing when things aren't going well. And the other thing that's been really big for me and has made, has helped me improve a lot, I think over the past couple of years is to talk about it right when I'm experiencing it. Tell my support team, you know, whether that's my therapist or my dietitian about eating disorder urges or my husband, you know, to really just put it out there. Because what I have realized in my past is that the things that I keep secret almost it like holds power over me, you know, like, so if I had, I experienced these self-harm behaviors a week ago and not told anybody that becomes like my dirty little secret. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I have to protect it. And then therefore I end up doing the behavior more. Mm -hmm. So, because then I feel like I'm not a moral person and I feel like I'm not telling people that I'm struggling and it makes me feel like a terrible person. And it just keeps layering itself on top of you know, and making the situation worse. So for me, that's been something that I've really tried to be better about is, oh, I'm having these urges. Okay, let's talk about it. You know, what does that look like? What can we do to, you know, mitigate those urges and whatnot? So yeah, but I mean, it is, yeah, it's a, it's a second job. (laughs) Thank you so much for, because that's like a a bit of a masterclass in ERT there. It's just that step-by-step approach, I think is, is invaluable for our listeners who, who who this may resonate with um and also your honesty of how you deal with it on a day-to-day basis as well um but I guess my question which again neatly dovetails from that is for anyone listening who this may sound familiar or it might you know resonate a little bit with someone they know if not with themselves what advice would you give to our listeners with regards to mental health, with regards to OCD, eating disorders, bipolar, your journey? What advice would you give to others? Yeah, I mean, I think the number one thing, and this is the number one thing I always say, is that there's hope. Uh, because I think the the worst thing is feeling that you're alone, feeling that nobody else is experiencing what you're experiencing. And I am here to tell you that they are um, and that there is hope. You can feel better. And with that, um, the biggest thing I think is resources, right? So obviously finding a treatment team that is able and capable of treating whatever it is that you may be experiencing. And, you know, you have to be an advocate for yourself at that point. You know, you feel free to interview your treatment providers just as much as they may ask you questions, ask the questions back, you know, make sure it's going to be the right fit. Make sure, you know, ask them, have you treated people with obsessive compulsive disorder? If you have, what treatment methods do you use? Do you use exposure response prevention? What have your outcomes been? Do your patients do well? You know, do they not? You know, ask all those questions and really kind of grill your, you know, treatment provider to make sure that they're going to be the right fit for you and that they're really going to actually be able to help you. Um, The other thing is, you know, it is, it is, it can be challenging to take that next step to, you know, find a treatment team and commit to treatment and whatnot. So in the meantime, There are so many resources out on the internet. Um, Just make sure that they're credible. You know, when it comes to obsessive compulsive disorder, there's the um, International um, Obsessive Compulsive Disorder Foundation, which is the IOCDF. They're great for OCD. Um, There's the National um, Eating Disorder Association, which is NIDA. Um, So that is a great resource for eating disorders. Um, there's the National Alliance of Mental Illness, which is NAMI. So that's really good for just, you know, generalized mental illnesses. So there are a lot of really good, credible resources out there. And those websites can help you kind of, you know, identify may, are you maybe experiencing something? Are you not? 
they can get you headed in the right direction of trying to connect with a treatment provider that is trained to help you. Um, but lots of really great resources out there. The only advice that I give is just make sure there's they're credible resources, um, you know, before following any of their recommendations or suggestions. Brooke, your, your story, like we say, it is sadly unique in the sense that of everything that you've experienced and are experiencing, but there are a lot of people out there that will resonate with this. We offer all of our listeners, sorry, not all of our listeners, that would be crazy because there are loads of them. And we offer all of our guests something called the final sip, which is the opportunity to hand the floor to you and to leave our listeners with any any piece of advice that you really feel needs to be heard not necessarily doesn't have to be advice it could be a statement or it could be completely not related to any of this um but the floor is yours <laughs> all right um I know I mentioned this before but this is always kind of my parting bits of wisdom um that there is hope and you're not alone um I think that while experiencing mental illnesses I think there's a lot of times where you feel alone and it can be very isolating and sad and it can really make worse whatever it is that you're um struggling with and so just know that you're not alone there are a lot of people out here in the world that are experiencing very very similar things to you and I say similar not exact because I think everyone's journey with mental illness is specific to that person and different and their own you know personal journey with that um and that there's hope that there is treatment out there. There are treatment providers, although they may be challenging to find sometimes as I experienced, there are treatment providers out there that are trained to help you with these things. There are great resources online. Uh, once you know them, you're able to access them and use them. A lot of those resources are free. There are free support groups, online support groups, so you can connect with people so that you don't feel alone. But that um, is always kind of my parting message is that there's hope and you're not alone. Brooke, we cannot thank you enough for just being so open and sharing your story and the fantastic advice you've given as well. There have been some really incredible practical approaches and methods that you've shared with us. We'll put all the links to the organizations that you mentioned and also to your socials as well so people can can follow your journey from, from today. Um, but thank you so, so much for coming on and being our incredibly very special guest. Thank so you. thank you. And listeners, if you've enjoyed what you heard, you can support us too by going to our website and going to our supporters page where you can buy us a coffee or a tea or a kombucha or anything else. No, I'm I'm all about the kombucha at the moment. I'm 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 gonna try it again. You're gonna go for it. You're gonna go for it. I'm not going to try and make my own. That sounds crazy. And I probably end up getting drunk from it. <laughs> sounds dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Just buy some just to start with. See how we go. <laughs> so thank you for joining us today. And it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from her. <laughs> See you soon, everyone. Take care. Bye. Bye.